subject this morning, and I know some of you, when you hear it, is going to say, well, that's good. <laughs> but I'll tell you something else. We need to know who the enemy is. Now, I preach, I think, five Sundays on demons and the demon world and whatever. Folks don't preach that anymore, people. There was a time when these old churches in the backwoods, they preached that stuff. They don't preach it anymore. We don't understand. I mean, if 70% of the people in the United States don't even believe in Satan, he's doing a pretty good job. He really, really is. So maybe just a little bit. We brought it to people's minds that when they see themselves in a situation, they can say, I wonder if Satan's behind this. Because I do that every day. But I have learned in my mind to separate the things that are spiritual from the things of the world. Now I can get concerned about spiritual things because they involve God in heaven and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to let myself get too wrapped up in the things that belong to that list that says this is the world. And the world belongs to Satan. And you can't let Satan and the world get you too uptight about anything that happens on down here. And that's what I'm trying to do. Is put them in two different boxes. You know, you got an in-box on somebody's desk and an out-box. Well, you know, you put the world's things in one box and God's things in another. And we're going to see that this morning. Because God believes that too. The, the title of the sermon this morning is Who Do You Fear? This is a time to ask yourself some questions. What scares you? I mean, I'm serious. What scares you? Everybody gets scared about something, I guess. I never run into too many people that didn't. And they stayed in trouble all the time because they wasn't scared of anything. But I asked the question, what scares you? And then we'll go into a discussion about our attitudes about Jesus and about God. Does anything about that ever scare you? It has a lot of people. But we'll look this morning and see what Jesus and God say about what kind of attitude you ought to have about them. Because it's different. Even though one is the son of another one and out of the other one, made of the other one's flesh, they're different. They have a different role model altogether. I mean, it's a different, different whole character to the two people. And I think we interchange them so much now that we get mixed up about how we're supposed to think about this one and how we're supposed to think about that one. Because they're not the same. So if you want to turn to Psalms chapter 111, we'll start off there. There'll be a good many scriptures this morning. But what I like to do is to read you what they said so then you'll have it firsthand. I might get to add a little to it or to change a word here or there or something to give you a definition of a word that we don't use like they used it anymore. 
But in Psalms 111, in verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All right, now how many in this place have prayed for wisdom? How many have wished they had more wisdom? How many have asked God for wisdom? Well, you see what it says here, it makes a flat statement. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You're not going to get wisdom till you've got some kind of attitude about God. And fearing Him is the attitude you have if you want to get more wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do His commandments. In other words, if you're going to change your life to the point to where you obey God and do what He says, you're going to have to understand something about Him or you wouldn't change your life that much. His praise endureth forever. So, we see that several times in Scripture that in order... To get any information on God, you're first going to have to fear Him. Now, what does that mean? Well, just let me give you an example. That's not really fear like we think, they say. I was told when I was about 9 or 10 years old that the fear of the Lord is an Old Testament expression meaning reverential trust including hatred of evil. So you're really not scared of God. You just respect Him so much that you're scared to death of Him. See, I don't like that. I don't like that. But essentially, it gets down to the truth if you think about it enough. In other words, you respect God so much that you're scared to death of him. Does that make sense? I don't know. Everyone in Scripture that guessed a heavenly being was in their presence fell on their faces, or couldn't speak because of fear. Every single person in the book, when they thought they heard a voice, or thought that they could feel a heavenly being in their presence. You remember when those three guys walked up to Abraham on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah? You remember that? And they wanted to talk with him about him. And he got in an argument, if you will, not an argument, but a debate with Jesus about how many people in Sodom he would save the city if they could find that many righteous people in there. And he got them down to five. And they couldn't find five. But it scared Abraham when he realized that who he was talking to was a heavenly being because it was really Jesus before he was born as a baby in Bethlehem. It was back in the Old Testament 
when he came out of heaven and took on a bodily form down here and walked around with us and talked with us, and the other two were angels that had done the same thing. In Matthew chapter 17, maybe some of you can remember there. You remember the transfiguration? When Peter and James and, and, uh, and uh, John, wasn't it, went up on the mountain with Jesus, and all of a sudden here comes Moses and Elijah and they all up there and they take on different shapes and different looks. And in Matthew 17, chapter 6, Then answered Peter. Peter, he had to, Peter always had to speak up. It didn't matter how big a crowd he was in or how important it was. Peter always had to let somebody know that he was more important than everybody thought he was. And there's a lot of folks like that today. They just can't sit and not say something. They got to say something. And if you get to most of them talking, they're trying to prove to people that they're more important than those people thought they were. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it's a good thing for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make three tabernacles, little tent, little huts, out of, out of bushes. And one for Moses and one for Elias. And while he yet spoke, behold, a bright cloud, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. God was telling three or four or five of his best followers forever, Moses and Elijah and Peter and James and John and Jesus, was telling all them, this is my son, and I'm pleased with him, and y'all hush and listen to him. Now that's essentially what God told that bunch. Y'all just hush and listen to him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and they were so afraid. Scared them to death. Scared them to death just to know that they were standing that close to people coming out of heaven. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise. And don't be afraid. Jesus was telling them, don't be afraid. In my presence, Jesus said, don't be afraid. You know, in, in John chapter 15, Jesus told us, I want to be your friend. You remember that? I don't want to be your master. I want to be your friend. Now Jesus says, I want to be your friend. 
Because, see, if somebody's your master, he doesn't have to tell you about anything. All he's got to tell you is you do this, you do that, you do this. But he says, I have told you the reason behind every single thing I have told you. You know now exactly why I'm telling you to do this stuff. Because a master doesn't have to do that. All he's got to do is just tell you to do it. And you're obliged to do it. And he called the Holy Spirit, which was to come after he left and went back to heaven. He called him the comforter, another comforter. In other words, he's including himself in that sentence. When I leave, he said, it can't happen unless I go. But when I leave and go back to heaven to be with my father, well, God then is going to send you a comforter that I will send you and he'll be like me. Well, they knew what Jesus was. Now, there's a question I got to thinking about. All right, let's look at the two men. The two people who are in our Bible, who are at the center of everything we think about and the much trouble we go to to do what we do and to know what we know and to live like we live and to treat other people like we treat other people. There are two men, God and Jesus. Do you ever remember Jesus killing anybody? Would that help form your opinion about Jesus and who he was and what he did, what he came to do and everything? Do you ever remember him killing anybody? There's one place I could find. You know, he was the one that showed up at Sodom. And I went back and studied it. And Jesus was the one that done away with Sodom and Gomorrah. He's the one that killed all those people. Because he was given that assignment and he came with those two angels from heaven to burn up Sodom and Gomorrah and everybody in them but Lot and his two daughters. So Jesus has himself killed an awful lot of people. But think about God. Would that have something to do with your opinion about God? I remember one place where David sinned and God killed 87,000 of his soldiers because David sinned. But he said in the Noah covenant, that covenant with Noah, after Noah come out of the ark, that it's not a good thing for people to punish somebody for something somebody else did. But then God turned around and did it. Then we can't help but get by the place that when the ark settled on Mount Ariat, there wasn't but eight people alive in the whole world. God killed everybody else. That's kind of hard to get your mind wrapped around. You know what I'm saying? But surely that should have something to do with how we think about those two people. Jesus says, I want to be your friend. I am your comforter. I'm here to help you. And God says, I'm your master. 
you're to obey me. You just do what I tell you. I don't feel like I have to explain anything to you. Jesus took the opposite. I'm explaining it to you because I don't want to be, I don't want you thinking of me that way. But think about this. What God may have aimed for you to do or led you to do, I found him, he's never been a guy that wanted to explain too much of what he wanted anyhow. He just said, do it. And then he tells you what's going to happen to you if you don't do it. God's not playing. God is very serious about this whole thing. And Jesus, Jesus is your brother. He's your sister. He's the oldest member of the church. And he's God's son. And he wants to be your friend. Now there is the two ways that these two people in our Bible have instructed us to feel about them. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30 to 33. Verse 30. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth to me. Now you know who that is. That's God. That's Jehovah God, Father God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will recompense people for their sin. I take that responsibility. Jesus, when he came, said he didn't, wasn't even sent to judge. He didn't comment about what we did. He just told us what the right thing was. But you never saw him get on to anybody. He said, go and sin no more to some of them. But mainly, he just told us what we needed to do. For we know him that hath said, vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. Now there's something you've got to understand. When you get in Scripture, You've heard me say that the word angels is never qualified. What do you mean by an angel? It could be Satan's angel. It could be the Lord's angel. You don't know until you read about it and see which one it actually turns out to be because he used the same word for all of them. And a lot of people get confused calling one angel the other angel because they're not at all the same but they were all created the same. But when you see the term Lord, that means master. And it can be speaking of God the Father or God the Son, either one. So you've got to decide which one the Bible is calling Lord. The Lord shall judge his people. 
If you know the Bible, that would have to be God because Jesus wasn't given judgment over them. He said he didn't come to judge. The Lord shall judge his people. And then look at verse 31. The author says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That word in the New Testament is phobio, the Greek word for fear. It's used 97 times in the New Testament. And the only place that it is not defined as real terror and fear is in the, I believe, fifth chapter of Ephesians, Verse 33, when it says, I would then that a man so love his wife even as himself and see that the woman reverence her husband. That's that word phobia. Now I don't mean to treat it light because I don't understand why the word is used 97 times in the Bible and the interpreters would change it to mean respect one time and the other 96 times use it as fear. Now this is the fear, folks, that that Corinthian jailer had when he found out that the light, that the storm and the earthquake had shook all the doors loose and he knew that if his prisoners got loose, they were going to cut his head off. That was the fear he had. Same word. So fear in the book in the New Testament at least, doesn't seem to be a reverential trust unless it's talking about a husband and a wife. Of course, I've always imagined to see one of these interpreters going home and his wife said, put the supper on the table and said, well, what did y'all interpret today? Said 33rd verse of the 5th chapter of Ephesians. Oh yeah, what did you say? And he's sitting there thinking he's already eaten a spoonful or two, you know. If I tell her that we said, that we translated that word fear, that a woman's supposed to be scared of her husband, he said, I might not get to finish the meal. I don't know why they did that. But that's the way it is. There's only one time. And it has to do with the respect a wife is supposed to show her husband. Now, it's a cool thing because from the standpoint of somebody who taught God in a marriage in all those years, it's interesting to note that like a little boy, your child goes to the store to get one of his buddies a birthday present. What does he give him? What does he buy for his buddy? Something he wants to play with himself, right? A toy he likes himself. So when two people marry, a woman responds to love because God commanded the man to love her even as himself. See, that's not what he told the wife. He told the wife to reverence her husband, respect him. So you see in that the secret to the whole thing about being married. The man loves his wife and the wife respects her husband. Now you can see what would happen if they don't understand that verse. 
The wife's giving his, her husband love and he wants respect and he's giving her respect and she wants love. The only way you can have a successful marriage is to know scripture and do it like God said it instead of like it feels like you ought to do it. But the thing is, regardless of what is said, 96 times that word is translated fear. Terror, T-E-R-R-O-R is another word. Terror. I mean, they're scared to death. And that's the way it's to be used as far as I understand in the New Testament. I don't know who would have come along and changed the whole idea about it. But he said it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a fearsome God. You get crossways with him, folks. God can be bad. He can be bad on you. And we'll see something right here. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 32. But call to remembrance. He said, remember now the former days in which after ye were illuminated. You know what that means. After you were born again, after you were given the light, ye endured a great fight of affliction. You did? Did you have trouble after you were saved? Trying to learn how to live a new life? Trying to get rid of your old friends? That you didn't think you ought to be around no more? Let me show you a couple of things, an observation. You endured a great fight of afflictions. Partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, you walked out at a local church probably, or a preacher talked to you and you accepted Christ as your Savior. And all of a sudden, you feel like a different person. And quite frankly, you don't really know how to act. Right? Right? It don't seem right being around your old buddies and doing all the stuff they used to do that you used to do with them. Partially while you were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions. And partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used. Partly because you're going through a new life and you don't know how to live it. And partly, you got to take up with a whole bunch of new friends that you ain't never been around, don't even know how they act, don't know why they're acting that way. But you've got to suppose to do that too. Now the one thing I see that's the difference there is if you were raised in the church, you ain't got to get a bunch of new friends. Your new friends are the same ones you've always had. You just deal with them as a Christian instead of a church goer. And partly, whilst ye became companions of them that have been used like a Christian all along. They understand what being a Christian is. So I don't know. I can see how somebody who was saved on the street by someone who witnessed to them 
and then they had to go find them a church and go to a church maybe the first time they'd ever been. I've seen people like that. I've carried them to church their first time and they'd never been in a church before. They didn't know how to act. And when the Holy Spirit started speaking to them, they'd run to me and say, I'm going crazy, I guess, Mr. Joe. Why? Because there's something telling me I'm not supposed to do this, not supposed to do that. I said, well, that's the Holy Spirit. I ain't never felt that before. I said, well, no, you hadn't. You hadn't been saved before. You learn a lot out of Christians like that. People that don't try to hide how bad they've been. Most of us try to do that. Look, if you will, at Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 24. This is God talking. Think if this was Jesus talking. How strange it would sound. This is God talking. Verse 24. Because I have called and you refused. You wouldn't listen to me. I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded it. But ye have said it naught all of my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I scolded you and you wouldn't listen. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. In other words, I mean trouble has come around you so fast you couldn't even see it coming. You're scared to death. Everything is falling apart. When distress and anguish come upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I'll not answer. They shall seek me early, but they'll not find me. For they that hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would have none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore, shall they eat of the fruit of their own way. You chose it, you eat it. That's what God is saying. You didn't want none of me, and eat what you got. And be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. God says, you listen to me, I'll make everything right for you. You don't listen to me, you're going to catch it. That's what he said. When things start happening to you and they just come around you like a whirlwind, I mean, everything in your life starts going south. 
because you wouldn't listen to God. Think for a moment about your experience with God. He's always right. Always right. He's also honest about you, about me, and about everybody. When he comes to you and tells you how you are, you are. <laughs> you don't have to hold your hand and say, whoa, 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 wait just a minute, God. Maybe you're wrong on this one. God's never wrong. Never is. And after a while, you get to where when he calls your hand at something, you know he's right. So you might as well book in your head and say, Lord, forgive me, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done it. Turn over a few pages to the right to chapter 14, Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 7. Wisdom here, God's wisdom is telling us, go from the presence of a foolish man. Don't hang around some guy you already figured out and got no sense. When thou perceivest not in him the lips of knowledge. I mean, this man's a fool. He's crazy. So God says, get away from him. Don't hang out with him. You'll listen to what he said and you'll go to wondering if he's right or not. It might cause you to, to compromise what God wants you to do and be. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his own way. But the folly of fools is deceit. Now look here. God is talking about two different kind of folks. The prudent, that's somebody who's wise, who thinks stuff out, who, who, who thinks stuff before he does it and doesn't mess up and jump and do something wrong. But he says a fool is always about trying to lie to you. He's trying to make you believe always that he's a better person than he is. That's what fools do. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way. Now let me ask you this. You, I mean, this stuff just keeps hitting me right in the face. A prudent man, a smart man, a Christian man, He's got plenty of sense. He's got control over himself. He's a very disciplined person. He always seems to have good judgment. He doesn't seem to make too many mistakes. You don't hear him running his mouth a bunch that gets himself in trouble. He's just a good fellow. That's a prudent person. Somebody who thinks before he opens his mouth. Here's the fool standing next, next to him. And all he's doing, if you think about the motive for all of this loose talk, bragging, ego, arrogance, all that stuff that God hates is to try to make you think that person is a better person than he is. And they're about that. God says that's what they always do. They're always trying to build themselves up. But here we are, trying to understand our way. 
Now, I don't know how long you've been saved. I've been saved 60 years. That's a long time. And do you know, I don't know about you, but I'm still trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do the rest of the day or tomorrow or how I'm supposed to live for God, the decisions I'm supposed to make and whatever. I'm still trying to figure it out because I don't know what I'm going to have to face and I don't know ahead of time exactly how to make a decision that God would be pleased with. So what am I trying to do? As a Christian today, I'm trying to figure out my own way. My way is now God's way. And frankly, I don't always know how to act because I'm a Christian and I'm trying to go God's way. So I have to slow down, be still and know that I am God and listen to the Lord to make sure that I do what he says I need to do instead of doing what could have come up in this pumpkin head up here and get me in a bunch of trouble. I've been there too. I don't want to go back. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. This will be the last one. First Timothy chapter 6. Now Timothy has been teaching or Paul's been teaching Timothy how to live right. And he's come down to it. These things teach and exhort, he says in verse 2. But chapter 3, verse 3. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words. Now here's a guy that's not talking all this wisdom that you've been told from the church. He's talking a bunch of trash and the words he's using are going to get you in trouble. Even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's not talking those words, he's talking all this street stuff. And to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he's proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, getting into debates and arguments about words. Whereof cometh envy and strife and railings and evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds. Don't hang out with somebody that's a fool. Exactly what he's saying. That's got a corrupt mind. That don't talk right. They don't try to lead you into doing something good. And destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. The reason I chose that scripture right there is because I find so many people, more than anywhere else, I find people that are following the wrong people more on a TV with a church than anywhere else I've ever seen. You couldn't find all the people trying to get you in trouble in town with as many people following as some of the people that these folks follow on TV. And some of the biggest, devilish, most devilish people we've got in the whole world are preaching on TV. 
and you listen to it and don't understand. Well, he's pretty good. I said, you mean him? Well, he's got 6,000 people coming to his church. Well, that's 6,000 people that don't know no better. And God's supposed to show you better. You're not supposed to be one of them. Why are you listening to him? Because you see what they're saying? I mean, he even tells you what they're trying to preach to you. Destitute of the, of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. When is your last time you heard about the little seed thing? You send $50 and you fix to get back a thousand. And he says right here that if you listen to that, that if you believe that following God is going to make you rich and you're going to drive Cadillac, what did one fellow I heard on, I was listening to him and I thought, man, this guy sounds pretty good. And all of a sudden he said, a fellow told me, well, I don't like a Rolls Royce. And I told him, sure enough, he said, yeah, he said, I don't care, I don't want a Rolls Royce. I don't pray for one, I don't lust for one, I just don't like them. He said, well, I guess that's the reason it's parked in front of my house then. You see what I'm saying? And I couldn't get to the TV quick enough to turn it off. The guy seemed like a cool guy. But he's teaching that if you follow God, you're going to get rich. There's something in it for you besides just these things that he teaches us. From such withdraw thyself. Get away from them. Don't listen to them. For we brought nothing into the world. But good godliness with contentment is great gain. If you are happy and content simply by following God. That's the whole idea. You know, it's what Karen said there one morning about this church. She said she had never seen a church where people came to get nothing but Jesus. And they seemed to be satisfied with that. They didn't want entertainment or nothing else. It's just Jesus. That's all that's here. That's all we got. So use wisdom. Okay, but wait a minute. Now, what is wisdom? Well, look at this. There are two parts to wisdom in the Bible. A fool in Scripture does not denote a mentally deficient person. Doesn't mean mean a crazy person. That's not what God calls a fool. There are seven kinds of fools in the Bible if you ever want to look it up. But not a one of them is crazy. Not a one of them. But rather, it's one who is arrogant and self-sufficient. That's who God calls a fool. One who orders his life as if there was no God. Have you ever heard a fellow say, have you thought about God today? A lot of people go through life all day long without thinking about God one time. That's what he's talking about. A fellow that's got all his mental stuff on what he can get out of life himself. One part of wisdom concerns what you will need in this life, and you go after it as hard as you can go. Everything you might want. And it might include that Rolls Royce. But I knew a fellow one time, he drove up in our yard, the feds come looking for him, he was 55 
$1,000 behind in the payments on his Rolls Royce. <laughs> I tried to tell him where it was, but I didn't know. But he, they said it was hidden in a barn in Shelby County, and they wanted to check my barn. I said, well, there they are out there. You can go check them if you want. He said, no, the way your wife lives, they ain't no Rolls Royce in one of those barns we know. The second part of wisdom is giving thought to your eternal well-being. God calls any person a fool when he gives his entire efforts only to the living of his life on earth. So if a fellow puts all his efforts on nothing but what he can get down here, God calls him a fool. And that's pretty much the way he does it. He doesn't talk about crazy people being fools. I'll tell you something else. I don't know whether you've ever run across that scripture or not, but if you have, you'll notice that God is very, very funny about who you call a fool to. Don't you call anybody a fool. Not let God hear you. I mean, he doesn't have any patience with that at all. So you don't call people fools. He can call them a fool because they try to get what they can out of this life down here instead of trying to work for an eternal life and to have that security with God. So we'll see today that's our observations on what do we think about God, what do we think about Jesus. We treat God as our master. We do his commandments. We do everything he says. We don't question it. We just do it. And Jesus wants to be your buddy. He wants to be your friend. He wants to be your comforter. He wants to do good things for you. And that's the difference in the way you treat those two people. And the Holy Spirit is in the middle. He, he doesn't deal with politics. He doesn't have a side. He's between God and his son Jesus. And he tries to get us to know what Jesus says that God says we ought to do because that's what God has planned for our life already. There is a plan for each one of us. And Jesus wants us to follow that plan. And that's the reason we ask him, what would I do? What do I need to do about this? So that's the way we think about the two who have leadership positions over us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the information that we can make ourselves understand how we need to think. That Jesus is our friend and our brother, our oldest brother and the oldest member of the church. And you, Lord, need to be obeyed. So, Father, we thank you for this. Make us understand how we need to think about both of you and how we need to pray at you with our prayers. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.